Hey friends, you are listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. To learn more about Grace Story and how you can get plugged into our community, visit gracestory.church. Alrighty, guys, we are continuing our study through the book of Deuteronomy. We are going to be in chapter 7, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 17 and following. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought them out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 17 and following. Hey, after the service today, you'll notice in the lobby that Nick has put together a new station for our offerings. There's a, an offering box bolted on to one of the walls out here as you're leaving the sanctuary, and that's going to serve two purposes for us. The first one is that we want to equip families to teach kids how to give regularly. We, we know that most of us give online, and so it's easy for that to become invisible to our kids. It's easy for them to not see that we're painstakingly ensuring that we're being faithful to give to the ministry of the local church. So the uh, first purpose is for us to be able to give our kids a visible example of how we do that. Now look, you don't have to every single week come and write a physical check and pop it in the box, but eventually we're going to get a QR code on the front of the box so that you can walk up and do your online giving there in front of the box. And if you already do that automatically, you can fake it and you can go to the QR code and you can show your kids how the online giving works and just kind of talk them through the reason that you give, how you determine what to give, and all of those things that go into being a faithful participant in the mission of God through our finances. You know, if you look into the Old Testament, there's actually multiple tithes. And the way that it would work is that you would bring your tithe to the priests and you could do whatever you wanted with your 10%. You could translate it into 
whatever goods you wanted to translate it into, and then you would bring it and you would give it to the priest at the temple. And it would be for the purpose of throwing a party in gratitude for all that God has done for you. And that party would be for the priests and for those who are in need in the city and in the nation of Jerusalem. So the cool thing about that is when we get to the New Testament, we find out that the priests are actually all of us in the body of Christ. We find out that the priests are actually all of those who are in Christ. And so what we do is we bring our 10%, we bring our tithe to the church. We present it to the priests. And it's there for us to carry out the ministry. It's there for us to sustain the priests of God in the work that God has called them to. And it happens that those priests are everyone in this room. And so we, we bring that Old Testament teaching into the New Testament in that way. And, and we hope that we'll all feel compelled to be faithful, to give generously to the mission of God here in our church. Um, the other reason that the box is out there is so that you'll be able to do just that more easily. You'll be able to see a visual reminder week after week that there's an expectation that we would give regularly and faithfully as a church. And for those of you who give automatically, it can give you a reminder that this is a spiritual act of worship. And as you leave, you can be reminded it's not just a rote act. It's not just money that disappears and we forget about. But it's a real act of worship. Whether it's happening automatically through a deduction from your bank account that you just forget about. Or whether it's happening intentionally and actively week after week. I hope it will be a reminder that giving is worship. And that you're... Not only contributing to our mission, but you're faithfully giving yourself in worship to our Father as you do that. So again, Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's going to be verses 17 and following. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. And we're going to, we're going to dig on in here. We're going to get right to it. So this passage is really, it's all about fear. It's all about this idea of fear and how fear is an affront to God. It's an affront to God because if we consider ourselves under his protection, if we consider ourselves under his blessing, if we consider ourselves under God's sovereign love, then fear is out of place, isn't it? Fear, fear implies that there's something lacking in our protection. There's something lacking in his love. There's something lacking in his benevolence toward us so God here is going to forbid fear through the words of Moses and he's going to give us some reasons why we don't we don't need to fear and he does this in the context of this question of destruction so the immediately preceding verses recount what Israel's supposed to be doing with the nations what are they supposed to be doing with and to the nations and that gets into some stuff that's uncomfortable for us, but it's actually not the point. So I'm not going to make it the point of this message. The point is that God wants us to live fearlessly in light of who he is. He wants us to live fearlessly in light of what he's done, in light of what he's said, and in light of what he's shown himself to be in our lives. So I want to look at the passage and see what we can learn about how to be fearless. Look at the beginning. It says... If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. In other words, we're called to remember instead of being fearful. 
So remembering is laid out as the antidote to fear. And the thing about fear is it's deadly. Fear is absolutely deadly. And the reason that it's deadly is because it tempts us. It draws us to do wrong in order to protect ourselves, right? So when we're afraid, when we think we're in danger, then our resourcefulness is turned on. And if there's something we think we can do to protect ourselves, even if it's not what we know we should do, we're tempted to do it because we want to be protected. We want to be safe. And fear leads us to take those measures that are outside of God's will in order to carry out our own will. And that very same fear, it doesn't just tempt us to do that, doesn't just tempt us to do what's wrong, but it also convinces us that wrongdoing is both necessary and justified. Right? Don't we feel justified when we act out according to our fear? We're only doing what's necessary. We're only doing what has to be done. We can't see any way around it. It appears mandatory. It appears inevitable. So it's deadly. Fear is deadly. When we give way to it, we lose our judgment. We lose our ability to see clearly. We lose our ability. Oftentimes, it feels like to do what's right. So what's the antidote? Well, here, it's remembering we're supposed to remember, first of all, God's deeds in verses 18 and 19. Remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all of Egypt. The great signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So we're supposed to look back at the things that God has done, his deeds. We're supposed to remember the past. Now, for Israel, this has to do with the Exodus, doesn't it? It has to do with what God has done to bring them out of the most powerful nation in the world. In fact, at the time, you would say the most powerful nation in the history of the world. It was like the Pax Egyptus, right? This was the, the world of Egypt. Egypt ruled the known world for all intents and purposes. Israel was the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. It was like the Roman Empire of antiquity, Egypt. Immensely powerful. And God ripped Israel out of the clutches of Egypt. And so Israel's supposed to remember that. And what are they supposed to draw from that memory? Well, they're supposed to draw some inferences, right? Hmm, if God can do that, and God has declared his love for us, God has covenanted with us, and we don't need to be afraid of much of anything. We don't have to be afraid of anything. If God is on our side, we're supposed to remember his deeds. Now for us, we get to remember even greater deeds, don't we? We can look to Christ. We can look to Christ on the cross and we can look to Christ crucified, but then we can look to Christ resurrected. We can see the power of God on display in the life of Jesus Christ. We can see the power of God on display in the life of the apostles. We can see the power of God on display in the history of the church. We can see the power of God on display in the advance of the gospel right now. And we talk a ton about church decline, don't we? About the decline of the church. But have you ever paid attention to the phrase I always tag on to the end of that phrase? The decline of the church. Anybody? In the West, right? Because globally, the church is not in decline. The church is advancing. 
The church is growing. The church is bearing much fruit around the world, even as here we watch the church decline. So we can look around the world right now for evidence of the power of God. The gospel is advancing around the world. So we remember God's deeds, and it drives fear away. We also need to remember God's presence. God is with us. God is among us. We're never alone. We can trust that God is near. We can trust that God has maintained his devotion to this promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Just as he promised Abraham that he will forever be the God of Abraham and his children, we as Abraham's children enjoy that same promise that God is our God. He is with us. And that's enacted in the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We don't just have access to God in some in some kind of abstract sense, but we have the very presence of God in our lives. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies, we have material access to God's Holy Spirit. Isn't that insane? Think about that for a second. God is spirit. The Holy Spirit is spirit. And yet it's our bodies that are defined as his temple that's mind-blowing to me it's 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 an almost tangible access to God we can remember God's promises can remember God's promises that the Lord the Lord will clear away these nations he will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. So we can remember God's promises and that can lead us, can lead us to be more confident. It can drive fear away. And finally, we can remember God's characteristics and his attributes. The Lord your God is in your midst in verse 21, a great and awesome God. So the truth about who God is can drive fear away. So remembering is the antidote for fear. That means that forgetting, forgetting is the immediate cause of fear. When we're fearful, it's because we've forgotten what God has done. We've forgotten that God is near. We've forgotten what God has said. Or we've forgotten what God is like. When we remember those things, fear vanishes. It might not vanish instantly. Am I right? It might not vanish right away. But it will vanish. As we remember and believe all these things about God. And part of remembering, part of remembering the Lord is remembering that he's not only in control of what happens, but also how it happens and when it happens. Part of remembering the Lord is remembering that he's not only in control of what happens, but he's also in control of how it happens and when it happens. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you. 
little by little. Little by little. You may not make an end of them all at once, lest the beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. So remembering the Lord means remembering that he determines not just what happens, but how it happens, when it happens. I remember when I was working camp, whenever we would show up to camp, the first thing the director would say when you have your first staff meeting is, okay, everybody, let's sync our watches. So we're all looking at the same time. I always thought that was weird because my phone told me what time it was, you know, and wear a watch. But we're going to sync our watches so we all have the exact same time on our watches. So if I say you're late, you know you're late, right? We're going to sync our watches. And it's a similar thing here. We want to sync ourselves to God's timeline. We want to just give ourselves over to his timeline. I remember in marriage counseling, one of the things that I've said to people in the past is, like, look, over the course of your marriage, your spouse is going to change. Your spouse's appearance is going to change. Your spouse's personality is going to change. And that means that over the course of your marriage, your type is going to change. Because your type must be determined by your spouse. Right? Your, your type is not static. Your type is not something that is intrinsic to you. Your type is not something that is inviolable and can never shift. But it's your responsibility to develop as a human being so that your type is determined by your spouse, right? So if your spouse changes, your type changes. Well, check this out. If God's timeline changes, our plan changes. If God's timeline changes, our timeline changes. Because here's the thing about God. He will do everything he's promised. There's not a single word that God has promised that will fall flat. It's never going to happen. But he will not do it according to your strategic roadmap. God will not get on board with your wonderful plan for his life. He's just not going to do it. And that's why I think Moses says here, you may not. You may not make an end of them all at once. It reminds me of 1 Samuel 15, 23. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. In other words, when we, when we act against God, when we take the reins from God, when we attempt to grab control from God, when we attempt to be controlling, manipulative, what are we doing? We're practicing witchcraft. It's divination. It's this sin of pretending to have divine control. Only God is in control. He will do all that he has promised, but he will not do it according to your Strategic roadmap. And then Moses says exactly that. He says, but the Lord will give them over to you. The Lord will do it. And then he starts talking about some weird stuff that at first I didn't really understand because it seems clear to me from reading this passage that the point is about fear. Seems very clear to me as I read it. That, that's what Moses wants us to understand. Like fear is the thing here. And so why does he start talking about covetousness all of a sudden? 
What's going on? How does his mind arrive at that place? And then I remembered this phrase, and you guys have all heard it, FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. What is FOMO? Well, it's the bridge between fear and covetousness, isn't it? It's the, it's the bridge between these two kinds of sins. And FOMO seems a little anachronistic when I'm talking about the Old Testament, right? It seems out of place. It seems like I'm bringing something in a time machine from 2024 back to the time of this passage. And the phrase is anachronistic, but the concept is right at home. The concept is right at home in antiquity because, you know, this is something that's happened many times in Scripture. I'll give you one example. When Israel demands a king, what kind of king do they demand? They have a desire for a king that's activated by their FOMO. They say, give us a king like the other nations. We're afraid we're missing out on something. We want a king that looks good on a horse. We want a king that stands a head taller than the rest of the people. We want a king who is like the kings that we see in all these other nations. That's what we want. We feel like we're missing out. We, we covet what the nations have. And God's deeply insulted by that. God's offended by that because he has given himself to them as their king. He said, I will rule over you. I will be your gracious King, why are you asking me for someone else instead? But here they're not warned against desiring a king. They're warned against desiring a God like the other nations, aren't they? The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God, and you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. So fear in the form of coveting actually tempts us by suggesting that by doing things God's way, we may miss out on the benefits of doing things the world's way. And it looks like, you know, on a superficial level, what the world worships is attractive. On a superficial level, it seems to work for them. On a superficial level, it seems to make them happy. On a superficial level, it seems to be a lot of fun. On a superficial level, it seems like maybe they've got the right idea. But on a deeper level, it's idolatrous. Because here's the deal. How the world worships is determined by whom the world worships. How the world worships is determined by whom the world worships. In the same way that how we worship is informed by who we worship. So because we worship the true and living God... We live lives of worship that are supposed to look a certain way in submission to God's word, in submission to what God has revealed in scripture and in creation, in submission to what God has revealed about his church, in submission to what God has revealed about humanity, in submission to all that God has demanded of us and shown to us. And at an essential level, at an essential level, the world's ways are destructive. 
and they're intrinsically destructive, not arbitrarily labeled as destructive. You guys watch any zombie movies or zombie shows ever at any point? The, the scariest thing about zombies, the absolute scariest thing about zombies, my brother pointed this out to me, and it's pretty obvious once you think about it, but the scariest thing about zombies is that if they touch you, you become like them. That's the scariest thing about zombies. It's not that... It's not that your life is over. It's not that, you know, everything is going to be awful. It's that now you're a zombie, right? It, it, that's the scary thing about zombies, and that's exactly what Moses is trying to get across here. It's that when we worship the gods of the nations, we become like the gods of the nations. It's one of the themes of Scripture that we become what we worship. We become like the gods that we choose for ourselves. So when Moses says that they're devoted to destruction and you will be devoted to destruction, what he means is both that, yes, you will incur the wrath of God, but also that you will become like these false gods and the only fitting end for you will be destruction because of who and what you will have become in giving yourselves to them. He says something really powerful. This phrase that he chooses really caught me. He says, you shall not bring it into your house. Don't bring it into your house. You shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. Mm. So what I want to ask you is, in what ways are you bringing the world into your house? In what ways are you bringing the world into your house? Are you bringing the world into your house through your use of time? Through the way you prioritize your time? through the way that you spend the moments when you're faced with temptation or leisure? Are you bringing the world into your house through your use of money? Is your stewardship of your finances demonstrating that you're actually bringing the the world into your house, the, the gods of the nations into your house, rather than the God, the one true God, who made you and through Christ Jesus has saved you. So your time, your money, are you bringing the world into your house through your use of words? We've taught our kids that uh, when, when they're eating at the table, they should listen to their belly and not their tongue, right? When it's time to stop eating, listen to, is your belly satisfied? Right? Don't listen to your tongue. If your belly's satisfied and you still think you're hungry, well, then you're just hungry, right? You, you just you think it tastes good. You want more of that tasty food. And listen to your belly. And um, it just crossed my mind the other day when Farmer was telling me, you know, my, my belly's satisfied, but my tongue is still hungry. <laughs> and I was like, well, the Bible says that the man who can tame his tongue can control anything in the whole world, buddy. <laughs> you know, it crossed my mind that... Uh, 
to use it that way. But of course you know what the real power of the tongue is, right? What's the real power of the tongue? It's not in its power to lead us to more food than we need, right? It's in its power to overcome our heart, our mind, and our soul and lead us to say things that are destructive and painful to the people God has called us to love. Man, the person who can tame his tongue is perfect. Perfect, Scripture says. That tells me we ain't going to get there, (laughs) first of all. But it tells us that it's a fight worth fighting. Man. Are you bringing the world into your house through how you steward power in your home? How do you steward power in your home? And it's it's so hard having kids who are just as imperfect as we are, isn't it? It's so hard having kids who don't obey us any better than we obey the Lord, isn't it? It's so hard having kids who rebel against us just as readily as we rebel against the Lord. And who sin against us just as readily as we sin against them. It would be so much easier if the sin all just went in one direction, wouldn't it? Now, one of the easiest ways for us to fall into sin is through our use of power in the home. Because all the power in the home is on one side. You have the power in your home. And you're called to steward the power in your home. The gods of the nations, the gods of the nations taught the people of the nations to steward power in terrible ways, terrifying ways, especially when it comes to children, right? The God of Israel stewards his power through grace and love. gentleness how did Jesus steward power my burden is light my yoke is not heavy I think God calls us to steward power in our home in a way that reflects the character of God in Christ unless it's spanking time I'm just kidding just kidding. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard, to, it's hard to walk in the ways of the Lord in each of these categories. Our time, our money, our words, our power. So I just want to close with one question because I know that all of us are guilty of stewarding these things poorly by degrees, Right? So what will it look like this week to repent of that and to, as this text says, to utterly detest and abhor that which God detests and abhors?
abhors. What do you need to develop a new hatred for? Bet you didn't think I was going to give you that challenge this week, did you? That is exactly the challenge that I think this word gives to us. To develop right hatred this week. That because of what we know about God, because of these beautiful and glorious things we see in the Lord, that we would be filled with a deep hatred for all the things that God hates. It's a powerful thing to hate something, isn't it? And think about the distance that that implies. Lord, we pray that you would help us to develop right and good and beautiful hatred for the things that you hate. That our love for you, that our vision of you, that casting our gaze upon you would fill us with such love and devotion that we would deeply despise all the things that you despise, that we would see them for what they are, that we would run from them, that we would distance ourselves from those things. God, that we would begin by the power of Christ through your Holy Spirit to reflect your ways in our entire life, that we would steward our time just as you would have us to do, that we would steward our money just as you would have us to do, that we would steward our words just as you would have us to do, and that we would steward our power just as you would have us to do. Help us to be those who live according to your ways with such clarity the world can't help but look on and wonder, who is this God? We ask all this for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. For more resources and information on our church, visit gracestory.church.